If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Durimple. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you're a bit fancy. <laughs> this. What am I looking at in your background? That is not your usual abode. What's that about? It is not my usual abode. I'm calling you from Hyderabad and I'm staying, I'm glad to say not at my expense, in the Falaknuma Palace, which is now a hotel, which, which was the residence of two of the last Ottoman princesses. There were two princesses who were the daughters of Abdul Majid II, is that right? Or the granddaughters or the nieces. Anyway, mm-hmm. when they were shipped out at the end of the Ottoman Empire to Nice, and from Nice they were married off to, that was then the richest family in the world, which was the Nizam of Hyderabad's family. And there were two of them. One was called Durashavar and one was called Nilufa. And they ended up here. And I'm in Hyderabad on a completely different business. But uh, bizarrely, we have been put in a, in, a, in a former Ottoman residence in the middle of India. Can I just say, can I just say, never has the word koi been put anywhere near your name, not even in the same solar system as your name. But when you say, I'm here for some other business, no, not enough. I think pod people need to know what I know. <laughs> Why are you there? What has happened? Because that is a whopper of a story. It's a good story, and it's a happy story, a rare, rare happy story about history and conservation. 20 years ago, I came to Hyderabad and ended up writing a book called White Moogles, which was the story of James Achilles Kirkpatrick and his remarkable princess lover, who was called Gerunisa. And the two, well, first of all, Gerunisa got pregnant. The two ended up getting married under Islamic law. He converted to Islam to marry her. This is all in 1798. And he managed to sign a peace treaty uh, between the East India Company and the Nizam of Hyderabad, which resulted in two buildings being built. One was a remarkable Palladian villa, the largest and and, and, uh, most spectacular East India Company building in southern India that looks almost identical to the White House in Washington, built around the same time. It's a very similar model. It has the same uh, bow front on one side and, and a flat front on the other, mm-hmm. probably taken from the same Vitruvius Britannicus or one of those uh, Georgian pattern books. And anyway, it was th- th- this building was uh, looked as if it was about to collapse when I first went to Hyderabad in, in 1998. And at the beginning of the book, I put a little plea for funds Mm. I, I remember. And people people did come, they, they lobbed you a couple of quid here and there, And, didn't and a they? few people sent a fiver, a couple of people sent a tenner. And then someone, an anonymous donor, uh, who I met this afternoon, astonishingly, I don't think just because of my book, but I think he had read the book and, and did this, wrote a cheque for £1 million. No! That's, oh, It's a that's lovely so news. And then that was matched by one, the wonderful World Monuments Fund and, and many other generous donors. And I'm in Hyderabad celebrating the final restoration of this extraordinary building, which uh, opens tomorrow. This is so marvellous. 
listen, can you take loads and loads of pictures and um, and you know put them up on the the Twitter feed for Empire Pod? I think this is so fabulous, and we have to do a whole thing on white models. I, I'm just determined when we come back to India, that is on our list. But because I've got my journalist antenna up, <laughs> who is the person who gave you one million pounds? I'm not at liberty to say. It is an anonymous donor, but he is an English lover of architecture. He'd previously given generously to the World Monuments Fund to the restoration of Stowe, another amazing Georgian building. And we spent the afternoon going around the Piger tombs together this afternoon. Well, that's fabulous. Do you know what I did this afternoon? Ask me. <laughs> you really told me. me. You cleaned out the you. guinea pig. <laughs> I cleaned out the guinea pig's hutch. I put two loads of laundry on. I found out none of my children's trousers fit them anymore. See, I, I mean, I think we have comparable lives, is all I'm saying. Say, <laughs> this doesn't happen every day. It is an unusual day, but uh, it's, it's very nice monstrous. to be. I am so happy for you. That, that I, know, I know how much that would mean to you. Just to remind you, those of you who might have missed our last fabulous podcast with Bethany Hughes, we had a, a hefty dose of oestrogen last podcast. Thank <laughs> God, by the way, that we had some oestrogen injected into proceedings. So there'd been enough hunting and a fighting and a killing. But we talked to Bethany about the women of the Ottoman Empire from, from the very heights, you know, those women who corresponded with Elizabeth I, right down to the slave girls who were in cupboards in the harem scraping letters saying, help me. So, you know, I thought that was an extraordinary thing. What struck you the most about this? I think exactly what you just said. There's extraordinary stories of, of these newly discovered messages in the, in the top capi harem cupboards and, and, and furniture. But also for me, what was fascinating is I spent a lot of my life studying the Mughal Empire and the parallels between the power of the more powerful women of the Ottoman harem, uh, and the same thing in, in, in Delhi and Agra with the, with the Mughal women. So the Jahanara, for example, the, the daughter of Shah Jahan, built this extraordinary caravanserai in the middle of Delhi and, and mosques, and, and, and these were powerful women. And, and again, we, you know, it goes against all our stereotypes of what it means to be a Muslim woman, to think, see these women building great imperial buildings. I mean, th this is a podcast, go back if you haven't heard it, which is filled with edifying facts. I mean, please don't be fooled by the fact that we all ended the podcast by sh shouting hot sex, because we did. <laughs> it was not the tone of the entire podcast, but we certainly did scream hot sex. We're not talking hot sex this week. I think I maintained decorum throughout, Anita. You, you absolutely <laughs> didn't. You did not. But it's not hot sex. It is hot coffee this week, the ubiquitous cup of joe. We've got a very, very special guest who's listening and chuckling uh, to all that we are <laughs> whittering about at the moment. But it's high time we brought him into proceedings. It absolutely is. So we are very, very lucky today to have the doyen of Ottoman studies uh, of anywhere in the world today, the great Professor Jamal Kafadar uh, of Harvard University, Professor of Turkish Studies, author of a spectacular array of, uh, of publications on janissaries and dervishes and Suleiman the Magnificent and all the things we've been talking about. And, and in fact, really, we should have had Jamal on every episode from the beginning of this, this entire series. But I particularly wanted to save him because three or four years ago, he came to our Jaipur Literature Festival and gave not, not what was not only one of the best lectures we've ever had, but certainly the lecture which had the best title of any lecture in the history of the festival, which share, was share, share. How Dark is the History of the Night? How Black the Story of Coffee? How bitter the tale of love. Jamal, welcome. You know what? It was really funny, that lecture that you gave, because William was on one side of the hall mm. and I was completely on the other. And we both came out. I didn't know you were there, William, and, and I don't think you knew either. But I was, it was one of the few that I write notes down and yep. I couldn't mm. read them, any of them today. <laughs> My writing was terrible. <laughs> but it was just filled with such, um, such goodness. And also it linked a whole variety of things that we take for granted. The, you know, a Starbucks. I went to a Starbucks this morning on arrival in Hyderabad at the airport. I didn't think twice where the coffee had come from or the, exist the, the existence of, uh, of coffee as a beverage universal around the world. It's something to think about. But uh, Jamal's lecture pointed out, of course, that like with anything else, it has a history. It started somewhere. Yeah. It's something that was invented and mm -hmm. it spread around the world through the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Uh, Jamal, first of all, I mean, that, that, that title itself is so poetic. Where, where did it come from? Working on the history of coffee and coffee houses, I came interested in the history of the nighttime. The conquest of the night, as you call it in your essay. It's a lovely word. That is right. <laughs> because I think a conquest of the night started unfolding around the same time. And the nighttime became far more occupied, far more busy, far more 
active for all sorts of people for social reasons, for, for labor, but also for entertainment. And new forms of entertainment came up. Pleasure and leisure is the two things you said. That's right. The shadow puppet theater and, and performative storytelling in new forms, though it's a medieval genre called Medah in Arabic and, and various languages that uh, use that Arabic base. These new forms of entertainment were performed mostly at, at nighttime in coffee houses or in environments, homes where coffee was being consumed as a social beverage. Mm -hmm. So the three things came together. And, and by the way, I mean, the new types of tales I thought were different. So where you started, <laughs> sex, love, coffee, <laughs> the two came together in a big way. At least tales of love did. And certainly when coffee arrives in Europe, everyone associates it with, it was kind of regarded as a sort of Viagra, wasn't it? Well, sort of Viagra and also causing erectile dysfunction. I've read both things. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The latter, there is a 1675 women's petition in London posted on walls. This you can find easily on the internet. 1675 women's petition against coffee, which they say, take away their men. You could take it as, you could take it as a social space. Yeah. Clearly more is intended because there is men's response that came up and was posted in London the following month or so, where men defend their performance. <laughs> that very word. No, in Galenic medicine, mm. coffee was considered to be not so good if consumed more than moderately for men because men have a dry temperament and coffee is drying. In fact, women's, the women's petition of London refers to it as that drying, enfeebling liquor. Really? Enfeebling liquor. Mm -hmm. So in Ottoman discourse, before, before it ever really got to Europe, physicians were writing about it. And they were saying that if men consume more of it than moderately, then their temperament, which is already dry, is going to be dried out. Oh, I see temperament. Temperament. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was something else entirely. Temperament. Okay. Which got is, it. But which is the key medical category for Galenic medicine, yeah, right? Okay. Okay. Well, listen, we're going to come to all of that in a minute. I think I feel like we're jumping the gun and, and I don't want to because it, this is, you know, from the first sip to the last sip of, of what you have to offer us, it's all delicious. So let, let's start from the very, very beginning. Where did coffee come from? How far back does it go and who do we have to thank for what is for many people listening to this, a lifesaver. All right. So the natural history of coffee is very ancient. We don't know exactly when, but it's from the Yemen, Ethiopia region on either side of the Horn of Africa. And it's what, what really concerns us is when it turns into a social beverage, when it is more than just something out there as a, as a plant, which may have been used incidentally by people, but did become a social beverage when some Sufis in Yemen, actually the very man to whom this is attributed is from Tunis, Shazili, Al-Shazili, a founder of a Sufi order, who was like the wandering dervishes, mystics of all different faiths. He was also a man of travels. And when he was in Yemen, he found this substance to be very useful. And people said, it made them discover that it made you nimble in the mind. Okay, but there is a, there is a step. <laughs> How did our founder of the Sufi order know that it made you nimble? So Willie and I are both reveling in a story. Willie, go and tell it. The story yes, I mean, I, I, as a goat herd, I, 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 feel, I feel a bit proprietorial about this story. The story always is, is that, that a goat herd uh, was watching his goats on a hillside of the Yemen, that they go oh. frequently to this bush, uh, nibble at the at the fruits and then start jumping around uh, as if uh, yeah. get frisky. They get frisky goats. So the man thought, I, I'll have a bit of that. I'd like to be a bit frisky. So he tried it. There I know this. The story is repeated often, and it may be true, but the, the history of coffee, like the history of many substances, is full of these colourful tales. But at least we do know that from that story of the goat herd, it mm. did not turn into a social beverage. It did not stick. Okay. So first of all, people chewed it as, it as if it were a snack. I mean, I, I heard that right at the beginning, it wasn't a drink at all. People just chewed on the berries. Is that what you know to be Possibly, true? Possibly. Again, people say that, but I've never seen anything that substantiates it. Maybe confusing it with gut, the way you chew yeah, gut exactly. in Yemen. Or exactly. So the thing is, I'm sure people knew of it as a substance, a plant out there. Goats may have been visible with strange behavior. The goat herd himself may have tried it and found it to be, you know. I'm all for frisky goat herds. 
there, there must have been things of that sort. But this man in Yemen decided to turn it into something that one could use regularly. Right. Okay. For one's for one's social events, for one's rituals. Okay. So rituals. I'm really interested in the difference between the the ritual side of things. Mm. And then what it becomes, which is a social cohesion thing. So mm -hmm. at the beginning, I mean, for those who don't know, the Sufis, the dervishes, they believe that it's a much more spiritual form of Islam. So this mind-altering quality that, that coffee has, that, that was the thing that appealed, Jamal? Yes. Well, mind-altering, but also a substance that gave you that nimbleness, which you need if you want to perform all night with your incantations, with your conversations, you know, eventually Jewish mystics discovered the same. And the story is well told by colleagues who studied it, starting from the very pious city of Safed. Safed was the big center of neo-Kabbalistic, exactly. And they yeah. did the same thing a century and a half later than the Yemeni story. Mm. And this is in the countryside beyond Jerusalem, towards Galilee. That's right. Coffee houses were established as early as the 1570s there. And people, again, mystics, neo-Kabbalists, were using coffee to be able to keep awake at night. And they were concerned with keeping awake at night because both forms of mysticism want to do a lot with the night. What did the coffee, what, what did it look like and taste like at this time when they were using it? You're talking about the 1400s. So what would it have been like? And what would have been the rituals of making it? About the rituals of making it, I'm not sure. At least I don't know very much, but they were brewed in ibriks. Those nice things that you still see in the Arab world and with, right. the, with, the, with the, the pouring lip and the, and the pointed, pointed hat on top. Yeah. A point, oh, yes. So a pointed hat yeah. made of metal, made of clay. Made of metal. Made of metal. Okay, got you. Nowadays, mostly metal, but they, 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 you, you also had a pot ceramic form of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, how fascinating. So so initially, it's it's mystics of both faiths. Do you think they, it, it's an accident that the, the Sufis and the Kabbalists happened to stumble on this, or is there a link between the two? N not at all. Both of them were deeply interested in keeping the mind active, nimble at night, but also the psychoactive quality, the, the, the way it was mind-altering, as Anita was saying. Actually, we do know also that in the 1300s, the use of opium, or opiate substances became far more widespread for, again, uh, mind-expanding, mind-altering experiments, which, which became part of that world in which also different forms of organized Sufism and mysticism, the Muslim or other forms of mysticism were developing. So in the early days, is it true that mocha becomes, you know, we use that word now all the time, you can order, yes. a, you know, I'd like a mochaccino yes. or a mocha. That used to be the center, did it, of, of production? When did it suddenly become produced and then move its way into the Ottoman Empire? Talk us through that transition. Yes. So during the 1400s, it was slowly, the consumption was slowly moving northwards. And at least by the middle of that century, it hit the Hijaz, Mecca, Medina. That is where big congregations come together, right? Mm -hmm. That's a big body of people who are ready-made consumers if, if coffee appeals to them. Mm -hmm. And it did. From the middle of the 15th century, we do know that it was moving up in the Arabian Peninsula and was being consumed in the Hijaz during the Hajj season. So it was pilgrims. Ah, okay. So Hajj pilgrims would have brought it, filtered it back throughout those countries. Exactly. And, and the point of Mocha, I believe, was that it was where the, the coffee trade and the chocolate trade both coincided. And therefore, it was where people mixed the two experimentally. Chocolate coming in from the New World, from the coming new, in new from the Portuguese. World, yes, yes, yeah. So European merchants were busy in Mocha in the 17th century especially. But before that, circa 1500, one century after Yemen, one may consider this slow, it hits Cairo, another big population center with huge demand for new substances, for, for all kinds of you know, entertainment, socializing. Cairo was a big center for all kinds of activities that we later associate with urban modernity, shadow puppet theater being included. Evliya Chelebi talks about Cairo as, as a very wicked place, doesn't he? He's very shocked by the number yes. of prostitutes, by the number of yes. boys on sale and this sort of thing. Uh, and, and, and coffee was part of that world, the, kind of the, under, the Cairo underground? Very much so, very much so. One of our earliest visual representations of a coffee house is from Cairo, from the Nile. 
There's a coffee house we know, in fact, to have existed spread across the two banks of the Nile. And one could do drive-in or row-in, rather. <laughs> and the picture shows that. You could, you could come there with your boat, get some you know, cups of coffee, row down the Nile, and then bring it back. But we do also know from Evliya Chelebi's account of, of Cairo that people played games of, how to put it, flirtation. Yep. So uh, once you had your coffee cup, you could take the saucer and let it float toward the next boat where your lover or your potential lover or the person, let's say, was on the boat. And if she picked it up or if he picked it up, it means they were interested. Okay, so so we're back to hot sex. Thank you. But listen, can I just ask this question? The coffee <laughs> house. It's like that we thought, hot I coffee know, and hot know, sex. Know, everything comes back to the same thing. Um, but the, the coffee houses themselves were very yes. masculine places, weren't they? I mean, yes. women, women did go or didn't go, were separated. What was the politics of that? In general, no, they did not go. But uh, this is an open air coffee house in Cairo. The weather permits it. And the depiction, that representation has a couple of women in it, which is possible. So it really depends a bit on the climate, on the architectural spatial configuration of the space, but it was mostly a male space. But when there was a big show of a uh, performer, be it, say, shadow puppet theater performer, the coffee house could function as a theater. A curtain would be drawn in the middle of the coffee house, so that on the right side and the left side, different sexes, different genders would be seated. Women mixing with the kids, the kids going on both sides of the curtain are stories we read about. Well, look, we're, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back on the other side of this curtain uh, and we're going to talk specifically <laughs> about the way in which coffee became synonymous with the Ottomans. So we've, we've come to Egypt, we've come from the early beginnings, but mm. now we want to know, is it Constantinople, is it Istanbul? When does it take hold of that particular city and through that city, the world? Join us after the break. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hello, welcome back. We are very, very lucky uh, to have Jamal Kafta with us, who is, well, he is the stimulant in today's <laughs> Cup of Coffee podcast. Um, and we left you, Jamal, just before the break. You were telling us about Cairo and how it became part of the louche atmosphere of Cairo. When does it come to the Ottomans? Because it is they, isn't it, who just channel it off all over the world. Right. You know, Cairo became Ottoman in 1516, 17, and North Africa soon thereafter. Suleiman the Magnificent pulls it into the empire. Right, Suleiman, Suleiman. And meantime, the actual actor in North Africa is the first corsair leader and then admiral called Barbarossa, you may have heard of it. Yeah. We deep with Barbarossa and the two Barbarossas. <laughs> the very, very first reference to coffee in Istanbul I found in the archives is in the home of Barbarossa. Barbarossa's home is described for particular legal reasons, and there is a coffee chamber in it in 1539. Brilliant. Oh, well, that makes him like a multi-millionaire with a Starbucks in the basement. Yes. I mean, they do that. That's exactly, <laughs> he's the prototype. That's but, hilarious. But the thing is, uh, this is before coffee houses were opened in Istanbul as social spaces. In other words, women were always a big part of the story of coffee, but mostly in homes, mm. where also socializing took place, obviously, but not in the same way as like a coffee house, which is which is a public, public space. Yeah. I'm still not clear what it tasted like and what it how it was made. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking it's not like the cup of coffee people are drinking while listening to this podcast. It's a very different product then, isn't it? Yes. You know how to make Turkish coffee, I guess. At least no, you've about. got to tell us. You've got to tell us, my Turkish friend. Not everybody does. <laughs> so tell me the perfect way to make a perfect cup of Turkish coffee. The perfect way to make a perfect cup of Turkish coffee is by having these little pots, cezve. Ground coffee beans, would that be it? Oh, you would use ground coffee beans, but I mean the little pot that mm -hmm. you then, and preferably you would use hot ashes because the idea is that it should simmer, it should 
come to a boiling point very slowly rather than simmer. Okay, not scorch, right? Right. Uh-huh. Very, very slowly you make it rise to the point where it bubbles, and then you take the cream, the foam on top, pour it onto your little pot, Yeah. and then when it boils, really boils, you pour the rest of it, hoping to keep the foam at the top of your little pot. Okay, but no milk sees it. it this is just no, foam, foam from the no coffee, milk, no milk. No, uh -huh. no milk, no sugar. Okay. Until the sugar comes in when uh, more bitter coffee from the European colonies in Java, in Southeast Asia, as well as in the Caribbean start coming in. But that's a later part of the story. I, I mean, I read somewhere, because we are obsessed on this podcast, and if you've heard us before, we are obsessed with Roxolana. And I, I saw this, uh, this story that she actually took her coffee with some water and a cube of Turkish delight. And that then became the, the staple of, of the coffee ritual. Uh, yes, I don't know if it really started with Roxelana. I hate that. Stop <laughs> bursting my balloons. <laughs> we don't even know if Roxelana consumed coffee, but she may have. Mm. And if she did, she had taste enough to do exactly what you said. <laughs> Namely, keep the coffee black. Mm -hmm. One needs to keep the coffee black. But if you want sweet, you can have something else on the side, like Turkish <laughs> Delight. Like, you know, the Greeks also consume what they now call Greek coffee, which they used to call Turkish coffee. But I mean, the Ottoman, the, the Greeks of the Ottoman world always bring some little cup of water and some sweets with the coffee, which is good taste. And um, Turkish Delight, is that is that something that originates in, in Turkey, in Greece, in the Ottoman world? What? In the Ottoman times, I think in the 18th century, we, we do have a maker of that thing called lokum. lokum. I don't know how far, how much older it is, but it, it got this good English uh, translation mm -hmm. <laughs> as Turkish Delight. Mm -hmm. Lokum is, 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 a, is Turkish or Greek, which or both? It's the same both. word in both. Yeah. Both. You know, the word Turkish was used in the in the early modern era in so many different ways that yep. sometimes it meant all Muslims, all Ottomans, etc. <laughs> like more. Yeah. Yes. Like, yes. like more. Yes. Oh, yeah. Not not all Ottomans loved the coffee thing because I mean, I, S Sultan Murad the Fourth really ah. didn't like coffee. Now, what what was his problem? Because he went as far as to sentence people to death for drinking coffee. A bad day for Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> he thought it led people to too much leisurely activity. It made people not disciplined enough that, you know, it, in his mind, it was associated not just with the substance, but with the whole lifestyle, with the whole socializing around it. And by then, tobacco had joined the scene. Circa 1600, English merchants brought from the New World tobacco, and one started consuming the two together. And I hope you don't uh, mind, uh, I will cite you an Arabic poem. No, I'd love it. Et duhan bila kahwa, kaljima bila shahwa which means tobacco without coffee is like sex without lust. Brilliant. We're back to sex. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are again. But I, mean, but I mean, the world of coffee and socializing around coffee was a mm. very worldly thing. Mm. This is exactly what Murad was fearing. Murad was worried that his people were turning into, into you know, effeminate socializers, people who just spent time instead of working on their military discipline, especially the soldiers he worried about, instead of working on their military drills and training, they were just going around coffee houses telling tales to mm. each other. Brilliant. Tales of love, maybe. I should say that at exactly the same time, in the 17th century, slightly later, you get coffee and tobacco arriving where I am today, Hyderabad. The first descriptions, the oldest descriptions I've read of coffee appearing anywhere is in the court of the Nizam of Hyderabad, and specifically it's served at night. Mm. Uh, and, and they describe the, uh, there's, a, there's an English, uh, an early East India Company merchant, who uh, no, a diplomat, who describes uh, going to the, one of the Nizam of Hyderabad's nighttime durbars, and it's all lit up with, with hundreds of lamps, and yes. they're serving strong yes. black coffee yes. in small cups. Lighting um, is important, um, yes. And then, uh, and then at the same time, you get these miniatures of early um, hookah houses, which isn't, isn't, what, isn't anything to do with hot sex. It's to do with hookahs as in the sense of uh, hubble bubbles. Uh, oh, yeah, like shishas, what people would yeah, call shishas yeah, yeah, today. Yeah. Yeah. And what you have is a man sitting there squatting with a round, bold uh, water pipe. 
and people queuing up for a puff. And there's a long line of 20 people in this miniature queuing up for a puff of the, uh, of the Hubble bubble or the shisha. Uh, and this is from Hyderabad in about 1700, the same time as the coffee. So the references to sex and love here really are not to juice it up, but I'm just trying to point out that it was part of a new world that we call the early modern world, which had a different approach to the joys of life and worldliness. And it did not go well much of the time with the disciplines of institutionalized religion, with the disciplines of state, and it and came it to loggerheads with, with the expectations of someone like Murad the Fourth. Mm. I love who this. Who himself, by the way, who himself was very much a uh, bon viveur, but only in his very, very private environment. Hypocrite. Otherwise, he even banned women from crossing the street to see their neighbors at some point. Well, Honestly. I mean, I don't like him. But the, the, you know, the, coffee, the coffee house culture, um, I mean, in, in, in Britain, and we're going to come to that hopefully very quickly, but, but in, in Istanbul at the time, hmm. you had different coffee houses for different pursuits, like merchants would be in one, the janissaries would have their own coffee. Could you not go into a janissary coffee house, for example, if, if you were a, a mere scribe like, you know, William or I? Well, I could definitely not go, but William. <laughs> you could, but you might feel... Uh, There was no ban on that, but you might feel alienated, you might feel uncomfortable. There were many coffee houses, by the way, where all kinds of clients could come in, Muslim, non-Muslim, or or all kinds of professions. These are the big cafe-like coffee houses. Mm -hmm. And then there were... Was this a new thing? Were the institutions before this where people would have gathered in that way? Thank you, William, for asking. Nothing like it. This is really a very new form of socializing, a very new form of conviviality. People pointed it out then. It's not just my observation or a modern scholar's observation. In 1551 or thereabouts, after Cairo, like half a century after Cairo, private users like Barbarossa have appeared, but two Syrian merchants are credited for creating the first public coffee house in totally closed space because Istanbul's climate demanded it. Mm in Istanbul, in an area which was already famous for a world of entertainment, for, for, for all kinds of social activity and, uh, and performance, performers. So in that area, they established it and it caught like wildfire. It did catch, yeah. I mean, but also the, the, the wildfire part of this spread so quickly. There's a, there's a beautiful image I've seen, actually. It's in um, the Chester Beatty Library. Yes. You know the one, right? Yes, so yes, I think yes. I think it's, what, 1500s? And it's, it's uh, men, I'm trying to remember it clearly, but men in very brightly colored turbans it in is. a coffee house in Istanbul. And it's, it's, it's in a, you know, now in an Irish collection, which I think yes. is rather marvelous. <laughs> when does the, the coffee as well as the imagery first hit Europe and Britain in particular? Yeah, a- around 1650, one century after Istanbul. That's quite early. It's quite early, exactly. And, and in Europe, the same thing happens. Once it starts, it catches like wildfire. Within half a century after Istanbul, you have 600 in the city alone and thousands across the empire, the Ottoman Empire. Within half a century after the British case, Oxford, uh, Oxford's London, first. Amazing. Oxford's first. 1649, I think. But the one in London is 1652 and it still stands. Is that the Pascarose? Yes. Um, coffee yes, house. Ah, yes. no, we should talk about Pascarose. I mean, it's a lovely story about Pascarose. Tell so me this more. is. I mean, this is the Levant Company we have to thank for so much of the, you know, the introduction of these exotic goods into Great Britain. But Pasco Rose used to work for uh, a man called Daniel Edwards, who worked for the Levant Company. And Daniel Edwards liked coffee because he'd spent some time in the Levant. But he got sick and tired of people bunging up his house until the early hours (laughs) of the morning. He wanted them to get out. So Pasco Rose, who was his servant, who made this fabulous coffee, uh, he said, just go and do it across the road in a shed. So I bought him a shed to do it in so that they weren't in his house when he wanted to do things. And that was the first coffee house in London. And I think within 10 years, they say, after Pascarese did the first coffee house, there were 83 coffee houses in London in 10 years. And, and is there any sense that it reaches Britain before it reaches somewhere where you'd expect to find it, like Venice? Would, was exactly. Venice first or...? It's a bit surprising. Again, in, yes, northern Italy is first in terms of private users, like in private environments, especially Jews connected between uh, the eastern Mediterranean and northern Italy. 
So the Jews who, who were in the Venetian ghetto would be trading with other Jews in Istanbul and, and, and sharing the love of coffee. Exactly. But these were not yet coffee houses. Like in Istanbul, home use was came before the public use. Mm. Um, and what's the story of the Oxford uh, coffee house? Was this was this scholars swatting for their finals? Or <laughs> I read of exact. That's my thinking. I read of a coffee society established uh, just a couple of years before the one in before the coffee house in London that Anita talked about. And uh, I think it, in my mind, it is still connected to that nimbleness of the mind at nighttime. Mystics mm. need it. Students need it. Students love it. Nowadays, they must be the most ardent consumers of coffee at night, right? I was when I yeah, was a student. Sure. Yeah. Writing your essays late at night. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the early coffee houses in London did very well. I mean, maybe partly because alcohol was found upon at that time. You know, this was an alternative that wasn't an intoxicant. You know, it wasn't something yes, that, yes. you know, that Cromwellian disapproval of getting out of your head on booze. It wasn't there for coffee houses, but very quickly, as in Istanbul, as you you know you were you were alluding to earlier, they become hubs of British political intrigue very very yes. quickly. Is that true of the Istanbul ones too? Yes. Were they political? Yeah. Yes, very quickly after their establishment, people started writing about political gossip, political mo mobilization happening in them. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't just our friend Murad who hated them. Charles II hated them. He thought that his downthrow was being plotted in coffee houses across the UK. He tried to ban them, and one of the reasons that they were such a worry, they were so seditious in England, is, is because of this sort of marriage with the printing press. That you know, people would come and they would put stuff up on the walls or on these long tables, which I think is the same way that these coffee houses were were formed in, in Turkey as well, where men of different classes but doing the same kind of thing would get the latest news, and then yes. they would get the printouts. First Brilliant. of all, from either shipping companies two hours before anyone else would see them or the news from the court would come. And then people would write scurrilous things and share them and laugh and bawdiness. And Charles II hated it. You know, he'd yes. seen his father's head cut off. He didn't want to go the same way. And he thought the coffee house was the place this might happen. Similar political tensions were there around coffee houses from, from the get-go. And not just in Istanbul, of course, in other cities, rebellious communities gathered in them and took action and, and, and ban bans happened in many different parts of the Ottoman Empire regularly at times of political repression. What about, you, we've been talking about leisure in coffee houses. I, my impression when I go to a, a, a modern tea house in Turkey uh, yeah. is backgammon um, being played yes. uh, and, and the noise of dice hitting the, hitting the wood and, and so on. Is that what's going on in Ottoman tea houses? And does it go to British ones afterwards? Yeah, the, the Ottomans did not have tea houses, really. Tea house is a very 20th century thing yep. in this geography, except maybe the very eastern part of Turkey towards Iran, because Iran took to tea earlier. How interesting. I didn't know that. It, it's, yeah. a, it's a different commercial network. The Russia and Iran took to tea much earlier in that Eurasian space. But Turkey now fascinated with tea, everywhere you find tea and sometimes not even any kind of coffee. That's a very 20th century development. Is it mainly the Levant company that is responsible for, you know, distributing and making, who's making money on this coffee that's now traveling all around Europe? Mostly Arab. At first, oh, oh, in Europe, yes, the Levant company and Dutch merchants, by the way. The Dutch are also very big. And the Dutch were the first to plant the Arabica bean successfully, to acclimatize it, namely, in their colonies in Java. Really? Right. The Java coffee begins then? Because, because when coffee became such a big deal in Europe, it obviously meant a lot in terms of trade balances. You buy so much from Yemen. Yemen hardly buys anything from you. And, and silver is flowing in that direction. So Yemen was so wealthy. You look at it today and you think of it yes, being this hub yes. of wealth. But also yeah. Kyrene merchants. Yes. I, I, Nelly Hanna writes about uh, the, the coffee merchants of old Cairo. Yes, dear William. Cairo really is the hinge between the you know Red Sea and the Indian Ocean part and the Mediterranean part. And they benefited from this from this uh, international trade. But again, the question of, of, of gaming. So that noise of that noise of, <laughs> uh, of dice on on board, is that part of the coffee house scene in Istanbul? Yes, that's very much a part of the coffee house scene. There is in fact a fatwa in one of the fatwa books <laughs> I have read, where it is said that if the noise of backgammon 
is so high that people are not able to hear the azan, the call to prayer, <laughs> then they shouldn't be playing. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> because it could get very loud also with people betting and cheering, right? Betting mm. was definitely forbidden, but people did it. So betting and cheering around the around the backgammon game might get very noisy. And does that come to Britain with the coffee house? Is backgammon something that comes from the Ottoman Empire to Britain? I doubt if backgammon, but board games did become part of that very scene very quickly. Chess definitely chess, was a of part course. of it. Yeah. But chess was always more cerebral mm-hmm. and backgammon a bit more populist. Well, talking about populism, there are things that we um, owe to coffee even today. So um, I, I keep going back to the, the Levant Company and, and those people connected to it. So have you heard of a man called William Harvey? William Harvey is the man who showed the world all about the circulation of the human body. They were the very first person to sort of map it and talk about it and understand that there was this network of, of vessels in the body. His brothers both worked for the Levant Company hmm. and he became obsessed with the effect that coffee had on circulation and you know and was a devotee of it in fact there's a lovely little quote from william harvey who says uh, the little fruit is the source of happiness and wit and apparently said this as he lay dying uh, he also had 50 pounds of coffee in his ha- you know on hand at the time of his death and he bequeathed it this and it was deemed to be treasure to his colleagues of the london college of physicians so that as long as the supply lasted they might gather once a month and drink it in his memory. Isn't that I lovely? love that. Isn't that a lovely story? I love that. I love that. Take me back to this 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 person you were talking about, Anita Pasco Rose. Oh yes, where's he I love from? So, I mean, it's, it's Ragusa, isn't it? Which is now modern day Dubrovnik. I think that's right, yes, isn't yeah. it, Jamal? Yes. Yes, that would yes. be it. And what do we know about Pascarose? What else do we know about him? Not so very much, but the character is very much like uh, what's his name, Prokop who established the very first coffee house in Paris, which uh-huh. still stands, by the way. It's, it's now a coffee house and eatery, but uh, the coffee house component is still quite there. And uh, Prokop is also from the Mediterranean setting, uh-huh. from Sicily, we are told, engaged in, in mediation between merchants of the Levant and European merchants. Yeah. And I think these these folks are very interesting. They they have not been in the radar of historians so much. Yeah, I mean people are people are looking at Pascal Rose a bit more. First of all, you know, you, you say the um, coffee house in Paris is still standing. The coffee house that Pascal Rose set up is now a pub. So, you know, that's gone full <laughs> circle. Uh, however, he was so successful, he started making money just hand over fist. There were queues outside Pascal Rose's festival shed. And then he has enough money to build a proper building. And then this proliferates. He falls out with his employer. Why wouldn't you, if you're making that much money, and decides to go it alone? We don't know how he ends. Apparently, I mean, there's sort of rumors of him having quite a, a miserable end. But by then, you know, within this 10-year period where now you have 83 coffee houses in London, they become the homes of some of the names which have had the most, you know, you're talking about nimbleness of mind, Samuel Pepys, Robert Hooke. John Locke, Christopher Wren, Edmund Halley. I'm just trying to think. Isaac Newton. So Isaac Newton, this is, I think, right. Did he dissect a dolphin on the table of a coffee house? (laughs) I think that's right, you know. I think he he did. He should have, if he didn't. Balzac, the French novelist and playwright, you were talking about Paris in the 1800s, he loved coffee so much, it killed him. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> he drank too much coffee and that killed him. Try this yeah. at home, kids. You know, you yeah. could tell similar stories of Ottoman intellectual icons, similar names. If I just went through 10, 12 names of Ottoman intellectuals, they were similarly part of the coffee house scene. One of them, Katip Celebi, seems to have lost his life after a cup of coffee. Brilliant. Well, I mean, how? After having a cup <laughs> of coffee, <laughs> yes. It killed him as well? Mm. Yes. Okay. It's, it's more of a comp... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. it's, it's funny, sort of the similar kind of time in Germany, King Frederick the Great of Germany is waging war against coffee. Um, yes. Because he described... Do you, I mean, you're aware he hated it so much, he wanted people to drink beer because the money was going out of his exchequer and exactly. paying for the coffee that people were crazy about. But Germany produced beer. So if they're drinking more coffee, they're drinking less beer. So he hated it. And I've got a lovely quote here. It's a letter from 1799 from uh, Frederick the Great. It is despicable to see how extensive the consumption of coffee is. If this is limited a bit, people will have to get used to beer again. (laughs) And he was apparently raised eating beer soup. 
So he thought that was much better. Right. This, mm-hmm. this reminds me again of Evliya Chelebi, who, who, when he goes to Persia, they try to make him drink wine, and he's horrified at the idea <laughs> of drinking. Uh, and all he wants is a nice cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Or so he says. Exactly. But yeah, trade balances were a big, big thing. So people consuming coffee coming from other nations, other economies, uh, was a matter of great concern. The, the Dutch and the French established in their colonies acclimatized coffee beans, as I was saying, mm. which produced Arabica, but way outside the Arabian world. What we now call Arabica has nothing to do except in its origin mm. with, with Yemen yeah, both, or with yeah. the Arabian world. So. Those coffees were a bit more bitter, and the Ottomans started using sugar with the coffee. In the, this is now we're moving into the 18th century. Right. And where did the Ottomans get their sugar from? From Cairo? Uh, the sugar itself? Yes, yes. Because obviously Europe had its, uh, the, the, this whole question, which we're going to be dealing with in our next series, about how the taste for sweetness in Europe led to the transatlantic slave trade. But in right. the Islamic world... Uh, they, you actually have sugar being grown in the delta in Egypt at right. this period. And so they, they never acquired the slave labor that, that the Europeans put to use to make, to, to get their sweetness. About trade, Yemen, of course, quickly lost its primacy during the course of the 18th century. And similarly with Cairo, which had that role as uh, right. intermediary. And the Ottomans preferred the coffee coming from the European colonies because it was cheaper. Not it was better, but it was cheaper. Can, can I ask you this question? I mean, on um, we'll, we'll sort of circle back to the UK in, in a second. But as far as the Ottomans were concerned, were they making money from coffee? Because I, I don't know whether you've read, there's a very interesting article in The Economist um, that came out that said, hmm. actually, coffee was the undoing of the Ottomans in the end. I mean, what is true here? It made them or it broke them? <laughs> I don't know. Really, I mean, are we talking of it as a commodity? It was one of the most important sources of revenue and riches for Cairo throughout the 16th and 17th centuries, yeah. especially the 17th into the early 18th. Mm-hmm. But it lost that role after a while. I, I sincerely doubt that it would break, though, the Ottoman economy. I think what it, I mean, this this uh, piece, I'm just trying to remember who wrote yeah. it, but it's about sort of the later part of, of the Ottoman Empire and the fact that it became a place where people would ferment dissent and where I differences right. would suddenly become enormously muscular and where like-minded people would go. And so that that idea of being a one people, the Ottomans are one people, that completely fragmented Partly the author writes, and I will remember her name. It is a she, but saying it, it is you can plot it with yeah. the the politicization that goes on within the coffee houses. But as we were saying, the politicization was happening from the get go. Yes, sixteenth. Yeah. I studied Janissary urban revolts in the sixteenth, seventeenth, and eighteenth centuries as a series, and the coffee houses have a lot to do with them, a growing role with all of the rebellions. Well, the, pol- the politics, I, I'm fascinated because in America, um, mm. it became unpatriotic to drink tea because of good old King George, and coffee became the drink of um, revolution yes, as well. Interesting. And I think it's that sort of that, that coffee house feeling that, you know, this is where people can meet under the radar. They were called, I mean, the coffee houses in the UK, again, this is something I'm completely fascinated with because all of the political dissent that, mm. that came from them. You've still got a magazine called The Spectator here where the gossipy column is called Coffee House. Mm-hmm. And that's because, you know, early journalism would send people out to these coffee houses to pick up little tidbits of information which they could get. But also this idea that if you hated the establishment, it was a safe place to meet, to talk, but also to learn about stuff. They were called penny universities as well here, where people would go and they could educate themselves with not just printed matter, but talking to people who knew stuff. So, you know, the the anarchy that came with the coffee house, I'm delighted by. William, (laughs) I sent you the advert from uh, Pasca Rose. It's a wonderful advert. Could you just tell, because I mean, I think you'll do it more justice. I'm enchanted by it. It says, the virtue of the coffee drink, and capital letters (laughs) coffee, the grain or berry called coffee groweth upon little trees, only in the deserts of Arabia in italics. Mm-hmm. It is brought from thence and drunk generally throughout all the grand seigneur's dominions. 
Yes. <laughs> it is a simple I mean, innocent I, thing composed I love the end into of a drink. It. Yeah, I mean, the end of it, though, is all the things that it's meant to do. I mean, this is, you know, the earliest snake oil selling from Pascarose, <laughs> good old Pascarose, who says it will it will be a, a, a cure for blindness. Uh, it's also a cure for kidney stones. Um, they are not troubled with the stone, gout, dropsy or scurvy in Turkey, ah, yes. where this is drunk. And uh, th- the skin is much better as well. There we are, Jamal. <laughs> it was the miracle cure-all for everything. And that's interesting, this, what we had earlier. It also says uh, it's better than any other drying drink for people in years. So it's good for old people, drying drink. Drying, mm. yes. So, so it wasn't as bad for women because women have, in the Galenic medical tradition, women have a wet temperament. They can tolerate more coffee, which is a right. drying liquor. And this again is right. in this advert, or children that have any running humours. Yes, yes, I mean, they're talking know, about humours. Galen. <laughs> Luckily, we've moved on a little from Galen. Everyone <laughs> drinks coffee. <laughs> he, he keeps going. This isn't the end. He says it's very good to prevent the miscarrying of childbearing women. So you, yep. it's, 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 it's good for giving birth. And it's the most excellent remedy against spleen, hypochondriac winds, and the like. <laughs> it's fantastic. It will prevent drowsiness and make one fit for business if one has occasion to watch. Uh, and if you are therefore not to drink or have it after supper. Brilliant. So, look, just finally, because we're running out of time, Jamal, um, yeah. and it's been a delight talking to you. It's wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask a really, I mean, we've been talking about such lofty things. So I have a really stupid question. <laughs> when when was milk added? <laughs> uh, frankly, I don't know. <laughs> but much later than anything I study, which is often, you know, I stop when you get to the early 19th century in terms of my primary research, archival research. So, so it must be very late. It may come from, from again, European or some other practice. The tea with milk in England may have been a model. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's certainly, if you, if you think how tea and coffee are drunk in Turkey today, it's still drunk basically without milk. Yes. yes. Uh, and uh, and even in Italy, it's considered slightly naff to have uh, milk in your coffee after lunch. People will, people will look at you oddly if you order a cappuccino in the afternoon. Uh, so England seems to be the, the source of this uh, terrible pollution. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, Jamal, thank you so, so much for that. You've been so generous with your scholarship and, and put it yeah. out in such an effortlessly uh, amusing and, and, and fantastic way. It made us think twice about things we do every day without uh, giving any thought to. It's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Dalrymple. <laughs>